Mora conducts physician-led support groups, helping people live healthier, happier lives, free from chronic diseases like diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. And on our podcast, Health and Mora with Dr. Lori Marbus, we bring to you nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests to empower and inspire you with their knowledge and stories of plant-based lifestyle so that you can be your healthiest self. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm going to welcome back a guest, Adam Sud. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be back. This is so, we always have a great conversation. And so I know the last time we spoke uh, a few weeks ago, is I was just thinking, I was like, everything you said is like a sound bite. It's like such a beautiful nugget. I was like, I can't wait for this interview because there's going to be some good stuff, guys. So oh, my pleasure. Well, because um, maybe some folks aren't familiar with your story and it's been a few years since we talked, could you just give us, you have quite the story. So, you know, give us an idea of where you come from and then we'll dive into your most recent. uh, Yeah, for for those of you who really want to get a sense of my story, because I know we want to talk about a lot of things on this this episode. (laughs) I've done an interview with Lori before, so please go back, listen to that episode I've done a phenomenal interview with Simon Hill on the Proof podcast. It's a great episode from 2018. Um, But really, you know, in summary, uh, I grew up uh, in Texas, um, immersed in a culture of meat eating. And as a result of that, um, I actually didn't experience any health concerns until in my late 20s. But what I did struggle with is something else that uh, Western culture struggles with, which is substance use disorder or addiction, however you wish to define it. Um, And it got started when I was in high school. And by the time I was in my mid twenties, it had become a full blown disorder um, where everything meaningful in my life had been moved down the list of priority, right? So, um, the loving and meaningful relationship with myself, both physically and emotionally was not something I wanted to show up and be present for every single day. Mm. Uh, the loving and meaningful bond with people in my life was not something I wanted to show up and be present for every single day. Um, a loving and meaningful bond with a purpose beyond myself that I could share within a community of shared respect was not something I wanted to show up and be present for. And my future was a, an increasingly more uncomfortable, terrifying and unpleasant place to be. So I didn't want to show up and work for that. I didn't, I didn't want to contribute. And I certainly didn't care about being there. And so when you're in that situation, uh, substance use is an incredibly attractive behavior mm-hmm. because it is an escape from that reality. And it's not only an escape, it's an easy and repeatable escape. Mm-hmm. That's really important. And we'll talk about that um, is why it's not just that it allows you to be relieved of the pain of your life. What's attractive about it is the ease and repeatability that you can do it. Uh, That's incredibly, sorry, that's so funny. Uh, We'll go back, that was actually Robbie Barbero calling. Um, um, It's not just that it removes you from the experience of your life, it's how easily and repeatable you can do it. That's That's why it's attractive. That's Mm -hmm. That's why, there is that what what my I, I like to call it and what other people like uh, British journalist Johan Hari, that's why we bond with it. Mm, yeah. Human beings have a phenomenal ability to bond. Mm-hmm. Um, we we need it. We need to have meaningful and loving bonds in our lives. Mm-hmm. Those meaningful and loving bonds in our life are what allow us to feel like we're successfully navigating our life. Absolutely. Um, and when our life is really painful we're going to bond with something that allows us to successfully escape our life. So for those individuals who suffer from substance use disorder, like myself, addiction makes a lot of sense, right? Our use is incredibly reasonable. Um, And as a result of my substance use, I I reached a point where I was 350 pounds. I had undiagnosed diabetes and heart disease, and I attempted to suicide. Um, I survived, I ended up in treatment got diagnosed with diabetes, heart disease, erectile dysfunction, put on, uh, you know, five or more psychological psych meds in addition to the five or more um, uh, chronic disease medications. And I had been given an opportunity to figure this out. And it was about a year, a year before that. I was given an opportunity to figure this out before this moment happened. And that opportunity was, was listening to a man named Rip Esselstyn, 
and his in, in unbelievable parents, Anne and Essie, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Esselstyn, as well as luminary thought leaders like Doug Lyle, Jeff Novick, uh, Dr. Michael Clapper, um, people who you and I know uh, are really responsible for ushering in the knowledge of what plant-based nutrition can offer individuals. And I was presented with this reality that like, hey, Adam, listen, if all you do is stop using, bro, you, you ain't got five years. Your, your goal cannot be just try not to use anymore. You really have to focus on reorganizing your life in a way so that you can establish some sense of feeling fully alive. Because if you don't do that, you're not, not only are you not guaranteed to have a life that you will enjoy living, you're not even guaranteed to be alive in five years. And so I, I took a hold of that. I took a hold of that opportunity and I ran with it. And six months later, my diabetes and heart disease and erectile dysfunction were, were completely reversed. Within one year, I was off of every single medication. I was put on a rehab, all the antidepressants, mood stabilizers, all of that. I lost about 150 pounds. I've lost 180 pounds as of today. I'm 10 years sober. And what I like to say is I'm 10 years of experiencing living in a meaningful way. Mm. Um, and uh, I've completed a research study, which I'm really proud of. I was inspired by what happened to me in recovery. Because Can I, I would, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to go back to, because there's, I feel like there's a part of your story that will kind of set the yeah. foundation for why mm -hmm. you went into this was one thing that always resonated with me when we talked and, you know, I've done a lot of interviews. I'm like in the three hundreds at this point. So yours really sticks in my mind was that story where you were like, you're in IOP, right? You're in the, you're in the rehab facility, yeah. And you're looking for healthy foods. Can you just tell us what those were and what you were doing? Because I feel like yeah, those were like yeah. your blanket. <laughs> so I moved out of, um, I, I spent 37 days in a rehab hospital. Uh, and for in, those who don't know what that is, that's your traditional re rehab center, right? Um, and that's a completely controlled environment. And then I was given not an ultimatum, but I was lovingly uh, encouraged to go spend the next potentially 90 days in a sober living facility. And that's like a halfway house for lack of a better term. It is a, 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 a home where you're going to live with other individuals who are equally seeking recovery. You have house managers that oversee that house. They administer medications and they take you to and from your meetings and therapy. Um, we, we call it a sober living facility because that's where you're learning to live a sober life. That's why they call it sober living but you have much more control over your life in this next stage of recovery. You now have um, faculty over how and what you eat. You have faculty over how and what you do for exercise. You don't really have much faculty over when you get up, what chores you have to do. This is really where you're learning to, you're essentially relearning to live your life in a healthy and meaningful way. But, when I got there, I took one look in the kitchen and I am not kidding you because I have photos to prove it. It looked like it was the, uh, it looked like the storage facility for all of the products for commercials that aired on Nickelodeon in the nineties. Right. So it was like, you know, uh, Totino's pizza rolls, hot pockets, uh, fruity pebbles, uh, fruit roll-ups, you know, I mean, it was string cheese, all the, you know, Oreos, every, you know what I'm, you know, the list I'm going to describe mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, they weren't, they didn't let me do this plant-based diet and rehab. Unfortunately, the dietitians at the time were not about to let a diabetic eat a high carbohydrate diet. Thankfully you and I know better than that. We're changing that. But uh, I said, man, if I don't, take initiative here and own my environment. I might leave here sober, but I will have not changed the trajectory of my life. Mm. I would still be heading towards heart attack, stroke, um, uh, uh, fatty liver, right? So liver failure, kidney failure, all of these blindness, all of these very real and not 20, 30 years from now, 
right? These were, my A1C was a 12. These were going to happen soon. All of these consequences were still very present unless I was to say, hey, look, I know there's a way I can do this that is likely to lead me in the direction that I want to go. And so I walked up to the house manager who I am not kidding, his last name was Hamburger and told him that I wanted to eat a plant-rich diet. I was not vegan at the time, okay? I was new, I was giving up drugs, I was giving up a lot of things. And so what I didn't wanna tell myself, I didn't wanna define my diet by any sort of restrictive belief system. So what I told myself I was gonna do was eat a plant-rich, fiber-rich, low-saturated fat lifestyle. That was my goal. And I knew that I had a goal of like letting it evolve over time. But in the beginning, what was I actually going to do? What was I going to eat? I didn't want to define it by what I wasn't going to eat, mm -hmm. which is what a vegan diet tells you. Mm -hmm. If someone says they're vegan, I just know what they don't eat. I don't know what they are eating. Mm -hmm. But I'm eating a fiber-rich, carbohydrate-rich, low-saturated fat lifestyle. That's exactly what I wanted to cultivate for myself. And that's what allowed me to be so successful in, mm. in terms of my health. So what, can you remind us again, what was the, uh, the it was sweet potatoes and was it black beans? Yeah. What was it? I can't remember. It's so funny because, <laughs> you know, I, I had to get up that, that next, I spent, I spent, I actually spent about a week and a half in the environment trying to make it work without actually like writing out a list for myself that I could mm. give to the house manager that they could go and buy these foods. I was like, well, you know, there's there's some plant foods here. I, let me try and make it work. But of course I was, I was, I was setting myself up to fail. I was trying to convince myself that it might be too hard. Right. Mm. And after about a week and a half, I had given myself the opportunity to say, you know, why, why not? Right. Here's the thing for anybody who's listening, who's considering making this kind of change in their life. I'm going to make you two guarantees for certain, right? This is going to happen 100%. If you do this thing, if you change your lifestyle and you eat a plant-rich diet and you're shifting away from a Western diet, you're going to have days that, you, that are hard, that are frustrating, that make you angry, that make you upset, that make you anxious, that make you sad. And if you don't do it, you're going to have the same days. <laughs> I guarantee it, right? So the question you have to ask yourself is, do I want to do this thing and have hard days or do I just want to have hard days? Mm. right and that's the question I asked myself and I said I have no reason not to try this right I don't know what I'm doing clearly I don't know how to properly feed myself and that's okay if I knew how to do it better I would have but I don't know any other way to do it and I don't know what I'm doing now so why not try this you know idea proposed by Rip Esselstyn why not what I, I have nothing to lose but disease <laughs> so why why not why not do it and I, I was like, man, if I'm going to do this, I got to, I got to write a meal plan. Mm. I have to. So I sat down and I thought this is going to be tough because at the time, the only greens I ever ate was the piece of lettuce they forgot to take off my burger at McDonald's. <laughs> and so it was going to be really short list and really simple. And that's because number one, I, I then and still now don't really enjoy cooking. I don't, I, I'm fine with just assembling food on a plate and heating it up, but I don't like recipes. One of the things I struggle with is uh, ADHD and my ADHD manifests in multi-step overwhelm. Mm. Meaning if there's anything that I have to do that, that requires multiple steps, you know, five or more steps in order to complete it, I, I can't get a real good sense of how long it will take me to complete that task. And that makes me feel overwhelmed. And what I typically want to do then is avoid it. So I knew that about myself. And so what I did was I strategized around that. I said, all right, microwavable oatmeal with cinnamon and fruit for breakfast, microwavable rice, canned beans, frozen veggies, and any kind of sauce, right? Spicy mustard, barbecue sauce, you know, it didn't matter, right? And then for dinner, again, frozen potatoes, frozen rice, uh, or microwavable rice, uh, frozen veggies, some kind of sauce. I knew that these meals were going to take very little time and very little energy to do it. Mm -hmm. And I needed them to. And then I looked at the rest of the week because I was just Monday. 
And I was like, I don't know anything else to do here. So I drew an arrow from Monday to Sunday and just wrote repeat above it. Now, I didn't know what a phenomenal strategy that would be at the time, but it ended up really being phenomenal because I did eat just those meals for a week. And after one week, I noticed, hey, my blood sugar dropped 150 points in one wow. week. Wow. 390, right? 390 down to about 250. Wow. So that, that was phenomenal feedback. Seems like I might've figured this thing out. Seems like this is a phenomenal direction to go. I wasn't weighing myself, but I noticed I was sleeping better. I noticed I was getting up with more energy and I noticed that I felt less pain throughout the day. Seems like this is a phenomenal thing to do. So I just decided I want to run that experiment again. I'm going to do just another seven days. I don't have to worry about the rest of my life. I just want to see if I do this for another seven days, am I going to get similar results? And sure enough, I did. So I ran that experiment. I ate the same foods for 10 months, right? Which no one has to do, but by keeping it so simple and so obvious, it was nearly impossible for me not to do the healing thing. And that's really important. What I figured out then, and I didn't know I was figuring out was that I had designed a system that made it so that my new habits cost as little time and energy as my old ones. That's really important because in the event of temptation, which is reasonable, right? Everything, uh, uh, if I was to walk past the cabinets, which I did every day, and I saw, you know, Fruity Pebbles, which was my favorite cereal, the most reasonable response my psychology should have is I should be attracted to that. I should be, right? It makes complete sense that I should be attracted to something that costs that little energy and gives me that, many, that much energy per bite. That is exactly the way my psychology should respond. So I have to have an option that costs me as little time and energy as that one, or else I'm going to choose the old behavior more often than I want. Hmm. I didn't know that then. I just happened to have done that. But now understanding behavior change, that was a phenomenal strategy. Yeah, you just made the easy, the right choice, the easy choice. I mean, that's right. just, yeah. that's fog you know, the fog, uh, behavior model 101. BJ fog. Yeah. Yeah. He's a friend. I really love him. He's amazing. Yeah. The, great book. Tiny habits. Like, Anybody is listening? Oh. Great book. Oh my gosh. I, yeah. I, I was so obsessed with meeting BJ fog that I actually signed up for his, he had a course for a month. He only took like 12 people and I mm-hmm. applied and I got accepted and we'd meet with him for like four hours once a week for four months. It was a, like, it was so cool. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that. Okay. So that sets the foundation. So people understand from the addiction yeah. side, how the food changed your life. So now yeah. you're, you're entering into a different phase and where your interest lies. So tell us how this all got started. Yeah. So I got inspired about a year after I checked into rehab because I lived in that sober living facility for 10 months. So wow. a grand total of 11 months and seven days, I was in recovery. Amazing. Um, and what I noticed was I was going through typically the average amount of time a person would spend there is 90 days minimum. So some, some of them were there for six months. Some of them I was with the whole time, but majority of them were always, no no one was there less than three months. What I noticed, what I observed was while yes, all of us attended the same uh, uh, intensive outpatient therapy program, which is a program where we would go Monday through Friday and do about four hours of therapy, both group therapy and individual therapy, and of all different kinds, right? Uh, you know, we had art therapy, we had DBT, cool. we had CBT, we did, like I said, there was even something called, um, I was like, it was like drama therapy where you would act out your therapy. There's yeah. some interesting research um, behind yeah. everything really, you're describing. It's really just, interesting. And, yeah, processing um, trauma. We did, uh, we did mindfulness, we did all kinds of stuff. Mm. So we were all engaged in the same program for IOP therapy. We're all living in the same environment, right? We're all living in the same house together and we're all seeking the same outcome, which is how do we live a better life, mm. right? Yes, being sober is a part of that equation, but that's, that's ultimately not really what we're looking for. Um, and what I observed at the end of that was that yes, all of them were sober, but a lot of them had ended up in a worse physical condition than when they got there, meaning they had either gained weight or they had gained chronic diseases. Mm. Their medication had either gone up in dosage or gone up in types of medication. 
And I found this to be really interesting because when I checked into treatment, I was the most unhealthy I'd ever been in my life. And when I left, I, I was at that point, the healthiest I'd ever been in my life. And I said, wow, that's really interesting that we could have such drastically different outcomes. Mm. One thing I know for sure is that our caloric environment was vastly different. So I, I started thinking, what does the research say around diet and mental health recovery? And I came to discover, and specifically mental health recovery in, in the, the niche of addiction recovery, I came to discover that there has never been a single controlled trial investigating the effects of nutrition on addiction recovery outcomes. Mm. Not one. And I, I, I spent a good amount of time angry about that. I kept looking for it and going, God, this is so infuriating. Why hasn't anyone done this? Why hasn't anyone done this yet? Why has it not been done? I kept saying that two months later, three months later, six months later, a year later. And then I just got sick and tired of asking that question. I was like, maybe stop asking why someone hasn't done it. Why don't you just do it, right? Just do it. And that, so that's what I did. Um, <laughs> I ran a study called the Infinite Study. And it's the very first controlled trial to investigate any diet, any nutrition protocol on early addiction recovery outcomes. And uh, this was in a treatment facility, which I find to be very valuable. Uh, the reason why I find it to be very valuable is it, it limits your, uh, the variables that you can't control. Mm. Meaning that if this were a population study, someone could say, well, but some of them were doing this and some of them were doing that. And then you don't know how much this influence, you don't know how much that influence. We know everything was the same for everybody else in this controlled environment called the treatment facility. The one thing we changed between the two groups was one group was on a treatment diet, which was a low fat plant-based diet. And they got nutrition education to match their dietary lifestyle. The other group, the control group was eating the diet that had already been designed for this treatment facility, which was, I will give them credit. It was an elevated Western diet. It was very much in alignment with a a more uh, authentic paleo, and I don't mean like paleo is an authentic diet. I mean like the actual uh, copywritten term paleo diet, mm. meaning that it was somewhat fiber rich mm. and they had removed a lot of processed foods. They were eating a lot of whole uh, vegetables. And so I was like, hey, you know what? If we're actually going to study this against something, why not study it against like a quality diet, right? Because you know this, when you're re looking at research studies, the first thing I look at is, well, what did they compare it to, mm -hmm. right? Is it even worth saying that this is valuable if the comparison was so bad that it was mm -hmm. doomed to be successful anyways, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and then that group got standard ADA nutrition education to match their lifestyle. And we ran this study for uh, about 50 participants over the course of a year. And what we discovered over the 10 week intervention, so these participants spent the first three weeks, 21 to 28 days in the rehab hospital, and then the next seven weeks in a sober living facility similar, similar to what I lived in. We followed these individuals for 10 weeks. And what we discovered was that individuals with the highest dietary quality, because after the three weeks, when you're in sober living, you have faculty over what you eat. You get to decide, hey, I want to do this thing or not. Let me caveat on this. What I find really interesting was the plant-based group, the percentage of participants in the plant-based group was that held on to their dietary lifestyle was higher than those in the control group. Mm. I find that interesting. I find that very valuable that for, for whatever reason, we haven't identified the mechanism. I think it's linked to self-esteem. Um, they decided that there was, there was reason enough, there was meaning enough to keep their diet uh, longer. So individuals with the highest dietary quality at 10 weeks had increased, marked increased uh, uh, um, outcomes in self-esteem and resilience. Mm -hmm. This is mm -hmm. incredibly valuable mm -hmm. because resilience and self-esteem are two of the most important factors in relapse prevention. Mm. And I find that really important because mm. yeah go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask you just when you just to caveat off that a little bit could you in the previous conversation we had I feel like you can explain that self-esteem piece because yeah. I really really planted a thought in my head that I would have never thought of I think only someone with your experience would think about sure. that connection so number one we have to think about what is self-esteem why is it important 
Uh, well, what most people think self-esteem is, uh, is this, the ego, mm. right? That you have this ego part of you that gives you a sense of, of how good you are at something or how, how great, you know, your abilities to do one thing. But what's a, a much more accurate way to look at self-esteem is it's a mechanism, a mechanism that can go up and down based on what self-esteem actually is. And I want, and I want people to think about it as an internal audience. That internal audience is essentially the world responding to you as if it were watching you do what you do. Now, let me explain to you why we think we see self-esteem go up when diet is of importance in recovery. When someone is dealing with substance use disorder, addiction, and it's reached the point where it's either they intervene or they die, right? It, it gets much worse or it gets better. Now's the time to do it. That individual were to go out and look outside their door, what they would notice is that people don't seem to be struggling with substance use. It seems like actually the majority of people, almost everyone that they see has no issue with substance use at all. And so from our internal audience, our self-esteem gets a sense that if all we do is stop using, well, we haven't really done anything worthy of applause. What we've essentially done is finally start doing what what everyone else seems to be doing all the time, okay? And that's, that's an ego trap that a lot of the addicts have to fight against. Because I will say, deciding not to use when use has become a disorder is an extraordinary effort and you should be applauded for it. But we don't think we're worthy of applause because the people in our lives don't seem to struggle from it. Mm -hmm. So what we're now doing is basically what everyone else does all the time without even thinking about it. Well, good for you, you stopped using. I don't ever use. Right? That's the way that we think the world looks at us. When we enter recovery, and instead of not using, we replace that use with healthy eating. Healthy eating, if you were to look outside your window right now, healthy eating seems to be something that a lot of people haven't figured out how to do. Oh my goodness, the average person you see walking around seems like they are struggling to figure this thing out. So if you replace use, or actively be sober, as I like to define it. There's passive sobriety, which is just not using, or active sobriety, which is actively replacing it with something beneficial. What you're gonna notice is as the benefits of that new behavior start to show up in your life two, three weeks later, maybe you've lost some weight, maybe you've started to reverse some diseases, maybe you just started to feel better, move better, think better, whatever it is. Someone's gonna take notice of that. Someone's going to take notice and they're going to say to you, what are you doing? How are you doing this? I've tried to eat healthy three, four, five times in my life. I can't do it longer than a week. How have you been able to do it for a month? As soon as you get a sense that that's what people are thinking, your esteem is going to rise because what you're going to get a sense of is you may have finally figured out something that not only you have struggled with your whole life, but that knowledge is valuable to everyone else because they seem to struggle with it as well. Mm. And if you can do that while you're in recovery, now recovery is worthy of applause because you took on two extraordinary efforts and they kind of compile on, on top of each other. Someone says, I just stopped using. Well, great, I don't use. I, I, I decided to eat healthy instead of using. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and, I, and I reversed my diabetes while doing it. Wait a minute, oh, how in the world did you do that? I tried to do that in my own life and I didn't have to give up drugs. How did you do that while getting sober? See, while getting sober, now being in recovery is something worthy of applause. This raises your self-esteem. It also gives you a sense that you have self-efficacy over your life and the trajectory that it's going. This raises your resilience. Your ability to say, hey, things might be hard right now, but the trajectory of my future has shifted from looking downhill to now looking uphill. Looks like there's something about my future that seems like I want to be a part of it for the first time in a long time. And so today might be hard, but I really want to see what that future is like. I really want to keep doing this thing because for the first time in maybe 5, 10, 15 years, maybe ever, my future feels like a safe and enjoyable place to be. And I really want to keep going with this. That's valuable. And because what you've done is you said, I used to use, and now instead of using, I'm eating healthy, you're going to bond with that healthy eating behavior. 
because that healthy eating behavior is part of what is creating a sense that your future is not something you want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that an individual bonded with their substance use, their life was too painful a place to be. So they bonded with a behavior that successfully allowed them to escape their life. They've now bonded with a behavior that is now successfully allowing them to create a future that they want to be a part of. Does that make sense? Yes, that's fabulous. I mean, it's so critically important that we understand that piece because I see that played out in, for example, our group visits or as patients are working amongst each other. So you'll have, you know, a different spectrum of experience. Someone who's really struggling with the plant-based diet, but they got some knowledge that you even see those people like to pass on knowledge. But then you see over the course of, you know, our, our interventions about three months, people are just doing fabulously well. And they automatically they pipe up and like, Hey, let me help you. Let me show you what this is. And they want to mentor. They want to be looked upon as helping someone. And it gives them a little bit of that dopamine, right? You're, you're totally hitting the dopamine. It also is a way for them to continue to raise their esteem. Yes. Because if they can establish that they have value that they can offer individuals, Mm -hmm. uh, what this means is that they're creating a sense within a group of individuals that they have a level of importance and biological importance, meaning that them being alive and then being healthy and then being valued makes the rest of their life, everyone else's life, potentially better and more valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is part of a lot of evolutionary psychology. Some of the stuff that Doug Lyle talks about mm-hmm. is that individuals have a sense of ranking the most important people in their lives. And the ranking isn't who's like the greatest, but like whose knowledge and technology and value keeps everyone alive longer, Hmm. helps everyone do better. If necessary, do they have knowledge and ability that can create a better experience for all of us? Hmm. And we're going to rank individuals by our perceived, uh, what we perceive them to be able to do for us. Mm -hmm. And so if you think that by gaining some kind of knowledge, like healthy eating, that might raise the ranking, you get to raise up in the ranks of those that you care about that raises your Mm self-esteem. It really does. People think that uh, it's not important to care about what other people people think about you. Well, it turns out that actually we have incredible sensitivity to that because what other people think of you throughout the entirety of the human evolutionary story really did matter. It really helped keep you alive longer. So humans are very sensitive to what other people think about us. But it's now been coming, it's coming to a way where we care that people think that we're like, you know, better than they are in all aspects of life. And so if someone ever judges you, it's become this superficial thing, Mm. right? For superficial reasons, we want to be believed that we're better rather than in very real reasons, which is like, hey, what kind of value can I, can I contribute to your life that makes your life better and my life better? Mm. That's really what the what I think of you has been throughout the course of human evolutionary story. And so that's why we have this real biological response to a sense that someone sees value in us. Mm -hmm. And the the value that they see is that we have something we can share with them. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly useful, especially in recovery, because addicts have spent a long time feeling like they have no business being around anybody. Mm. They're not worthy of being in the same place as other people. In fact, they're, it's a shame that they're around. It's a shame to look at them, right? And so if you have just a sense that somebody sees something inherently valuable in you, that is unbelievably powerful in early, especially early on in recovery. Hmm. It can give you a sense that there's a place waiting for you amongst your community of shared respect. Not only waiting for you, they need you. That is very, very important. Mm-hmm. To feel like the world around you, your community of shared respect, not only would like you to return, they actually need you to. Mm-hmm. That's really important. Mm-hmm. I like that, that they, they need you to. So you're basically, you know, it really comes down to a few different things that, that we could go down some rabbit holes here is I like it that you kind of bring it back to previously in evolutionary terms, as far as the community, right? you yeah. really had to have real value. Like, really so, did. I mean, elders were respected in the sense they passed down wisdom of how do you grow crops or, you know, exactly. how do we delivering babies or whatever that might be. And, you know, if you look into our world now where we're, our society is breaking down, those, those social networks are so, which were once so valuable enriching our lives mm-hmm. are gone. And this is where we're seeing the artificial values 
you know, yeah. kind of looking at beauty and perceived strength on social media and people projecting what they only want people to see instead of really exactly. creating those, those terms. It's not only sharing value, it's, it's just sharing it's, a superficial image. Yeah. It's artificial value, basically a hundred percent. Um, yeah. and that whole, I love that. One of the first things I wrote down here was, you know, when you mentioned it, part of the reason people would use, and I think for people like myself, looking from the outside in, you know, I haven't dealt with substance use, yeah. trying to understand, I certainly had patients who had substance use, but trying to understand that it, for me, it made it really clear. Something really clicked for me when you mentioned, you know, the future is not a place where you want to be. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's phenomenal to me. Yeah. And for me, that encompasses the word hope, right? So I always felt like my place was prescribing hope, but it really was helping someone see there can be a different future. So it's really so is- important. It's so important because when someone is a witness to someone who's struggling with addiction, mm-hmm. the question that seems valuable that we ask is how do we get them to stop mm-hmm. or why won't they stop? That seems like the, the obvious and reasonable question to ask. And so the obvious and reasonable question might, you might think that's a valuable question, but a much more valuable question to ask is why does their use make so much sense? Mm-hmm. Why is it a reasonable response to something that might be going on in their life? Because I don't think addiction is a disease. I think it's an incredibly human behavior. Mm-hmm. I think there are a few things that are as human as addiction. And because what addiction really is, is bonding. It's not this chemical hook that drives a compulsion to continue to use. Yes, that occurs, right? There is a chemical hook, but what is the chemical hook delivering, right? What, why for this person, if it's just the chemical hooks, well, why is, you know, shopping and gambling, this person's addiction. And why is cocaine this person's addiction? And why is alcohol this person's addiction when more than likely they've all experienced all of them, right? That person who's addicted to cocaine, they haven't just only ever used cocaine. They've probably used benzos and oxys. They've probably gambled. They've probably had sex. They've probably done all these other behaviors that deliver a chemical response that we call dopamine. They have all of the same responses, but why cocaine for that person? Mm. What does it deliver for them that for that person, it is so attractive? It is so attractive for them. That's really an incredibly a valuable question to answer because these people are not suffering from a disease. They're suffering from pain. And if you were to look at their lives and if you were to honestly investigate their lives and if you were to ask them questions, you would see, oh my God if that were me and I knew no other way to do it and someone had presented me cocaine and that cocaine relieved me of the experience of that life for three hours, Mm. I'd feel like I wanted to do it again. Mm -hmm. It would look incredibly attractive. It would also feel incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, what we have to now know is the next question is, well, don't they know what it's going to do to their life in 20, 30 years? That's where that other part comes in. Well, when you're in that much pain already, your future doesn't look like something you want to be a part of. In fact, your future looks worse than the day you're living in. And so you don't mind sacrificing your future for the opportunity to escape the pain you're in. It's not as much of a consequence as it looks like to you. To you, someone who's meaningfully connected in their life, right? And is able to live in a way where they have the experience of feeling fully alive, your future is a very sacred thing. You work very hard to protect it. But if your future looked like their future, you might have a different outlook on it. And the, the irony is that as the use continues, the future becomes worse. Yeah. Even though in the beginning, it created a sense that they may have figured it out. There's so many interesting caveats. This and, um, you know, as you're speaking, my mind goes to a, a few different things. So Really, it comes down to, you know, the thought of changing is less painful than the current pain, right? So that could be a, a, a point of starting because I started this podcast, honestly, when I couldn't six years ago, over six years ago, and it was literally as a physician, because I want to meet people and say like, okay, you were 400 pounds for 10 years. 
why suddenly were you able to make the decision and yeah. do like I've been on the literally I feel like I've been going after on some adventure and quest just because that answer I was yeah. just constantly looking and refining that answer and so I feel like this is part of it and it, it kind of goes back to you can think about like relationships right so like people who keep people in their lives who are harmful to them right either physically sure. mentally verbally sure and, and another thing, so I had a patient <clears throat> who um, smoked cigarettes. I mean, the man smoked like two packs of cigarettes a day. Yeah. Old call, Western Colorado rancher, <laughs> you know the type. You see them sitting wrinkled, the old cowboy mm -hmm. hat. Okay, so you can imagine the type. They're like in Texas too. They're everywhere. So I would tell him, don't you know, as a, as a young, well, I wasn't so young, middle physician, <laughs> uh, like, you know, why won't you stop you you can relate right off all the scientific knowledge yeah. and the the statistics he was like why quit i enjoy it i mean that was his response to me it didn't even yeah. rattle him at all and the um, thing is we ask the question because what we're hoping is that they don't know right when you but say don't you know don't you know they don't know. you know what's going to happen in 10 years doesn't Believe matter they all, they all know they know they know 100 they feel it every day but you know what got him to quit in one day was his granddaughter came up to him one day and he's smoking and his I think she was eight and he's like grandpa he goes and she was crying she's just you know really upset and he goes why are you crying darling and I could just hear him say it's like yeah. and he goes because 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 everybody who smokes is gonna die and that means you're gonna die he's like I'm not gonna die he literally stopped smoking that day and I had been on this guy forever to stop smoking. And I, when he told me he quit, it was the pain of him inflicting on this. He's like, I have no desire. The reward for smoking is not there. It actually wasn't the pain that he was going to no? cause his kid. So I'll tell you why this is why, why it worked. Okay, tell um, me, and this please. This is really important because everybody who's suffering from something is, is aware of the consequences, right? They're aware that they're going to get sick. They're aware that they're, they're, there's a likelihood of cancer if you're a smoker. They're aware that there's a likelihood of heart disease if you ask it every day. Mm -hmm. They're aware that there's a high likelihood of, you know, diabetes if you eat high fat food. Well, maybe not if they eat high fat food. They don't know that yet, but that's why, right? The reason why they change isn't because of the consequences, the negative consequences. The reason why they change is because at some point in time, they get a clear and present reminder of what can be taken from them. So... This person that you work with, this patient of yours, had their grandchild, who's a loving and meaningful bond in their life, come up to them and said, you have less time with me. Mm. And they weren't afraid of dying. They were reminded that if they stop, they get more time with this person. That's interesting. That's incredibly valuable because people aren't motivated by negative consequences. They're motivated to protect what those negative consequences could take from them. And those negative consequences always threaten loving and meaningful bonds in their life. He did it because he was reminded that what matters most to him is to have one, two, three, four more days with his grandchild. I, yeah, I think so. And, but I think of it in a few different ways in my mind. I feel like we're talking at semantics yeah. um, because it's, he sees it as suffering because as a parent, I know yeah. I would make different choices if I saw my child suffering. And I yeah. have made drastic life changes when I don't need to go into it, but I actually removed some people in my lives because it was very clear and made present yeah. in my, in one moment <laughs> that my one particular child was at risk. And so when I did that, and it, you know, um, because it was my choice to make sure that these family members were still present in our lives. And I, I removed those family members. It, you know, it wasn't my husband or anything. We're very, you know, yeah. it, it was, is, is more of my other immediate family because there was a point that physically, you know, my middle child was like, don't talk to my mom like that. You know, it's basically he's in the middle. So I was like, what am I doing? And it was like the light bulb came on yeah. where you remove that. Cause for me, it was like the thought of like, what am I doing? I'm allowing the suffering. And so I see it from my point was, it was still sad that that had to happen. But I, for, for my kids, that was for me, that was the turning and breaking point, you know, yeah. in the relationship piece. Yeah, it is kind of a semantics, 
I just think for one yeah. of the things I like to tell people is what you're wanting to do is not stop them from suffering. You're wanting them to experience joy, to experience more, more, more uh, uh, of the loving and meaningful experiences of being alive. Well, that, right? and you don't, you control, like if you have anything to control this mm -hmm. suffering, for me, it's decreasing. Suff life is, exactly. we're going to have exactly. suffering. This is the way it is. We Whoever tells you you're not going to suffer in life, they're lying to you. I'm they're just afraid. <laughs> but it's so important that you think of it like that because yeah. if all you wanted to do was not use, mm -hmm. well, that doesn't really give you the opportunity to truly protect those loving and meaningful bonds in your life. Right. But if you're really clear about what it is that you're wanting to reconnect to, the loving and meaningful bonds that you want to really reestablish in your life, you have to be very clear on the behaviors that do that for you. Right. So for me, I tell people I have never avoided meat, eggs and dairy in my life. I don't eat meat, eggs and dairy, but I've never avoided it. What I've done is I've developed a very clear understanding of the priorities and values in my life that allow me to live the life I want to live. Mm -hmm. And those are eating a plant rich diet. Is it likely that if I ate meat once a month that I would have any different experience in my life? Probably not. But it doesn't increase the value of my life. So it's mm -hmm. unnecessary. Mm -hmm. right? I think, for, especially for people who are trying to change their life right now, being very clear about your priorities and your values for how you want to live mm -hmm. is really important. Mm -hmm. And then what you want to do is you want to adhere and align with those values. Don't make it about right or wrong or good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. But I know that what I want to do is I want to go this direction. And in order that, to go that direction, I have to have a set of priorities and values that are incredibly clear that are going to direct my behavior. And then what I want to do is I want to go that direction 90% of the time or more. It makes it very clear and black and white. It's like, yeah. here's the rules that you set forward hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. It make, cause you're, you're making decisions that align with your identity, your values. But, it, makes but it's important because I say 90% or more, because I, I think that just like with substance abuse, mm -hmm. food is the, the, the food recovery world is very similar. And what they've done is they've created a narrative that anything less than perfect is a failure. The diet world has done a phenomenal job of creating that narrative. And the substance abuse recovery has done a phenomenal job of creating that narrative. Right. So what we'll do is I'll paint a picture for you here. Let's take a person who struggled with alcohol abuse for 10 years. What they were doing was the use of alcohol becomes so disordered that they were consuming a bottle of alcohol a day, liquor. Mm. Okay, And they were doing it because they had fully severed from their life. They said, you know what? My life isn't something I want to be a part of. My future isn't something I want to be a part of. It's too painful and too hard. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to numb myself up. I'm going to escape my life until my life ends. But until my life ends, I just don't want to feel this anymore. Hmm. So they drink a bottle or more of alcohol a day. Something happens to them. It's that rock bottom, beautiful rock bottom moment where they're presented clear and present. The fact that if they keep going this direction, they will without question lose everything that's loving and meaningful to them. Or they can change the direction and they can have an opportunity to get it back. Do you want to fight for it or do you not? They're presented with that and they say, I want to fight for it. They go into recovery and they go into the traditional AA recovery or addiction recovery model, which is success is abstinence entire. You have to be perfectly abstinent from your substance or you are, you are failing. And they spend a year, 365 days separate from their substances. That's an extraordinary effort. Then something happens that tests the limits of the recovery to limits that haven't, haven't been tested before. Something incredibly tragic happens. And their first instinct is, this is a really heavy thing. And I know how to solve this. I know how to not feel this. So they find themselves at a bar and they are sitting in front of a bottle or a glass of liquor. And maybe they have a sip, shit, maybe they even drink the whole thing. And at the end of it, they go, hang on a second. This is not how I want to do this. Mm -hmm. This is not how I want to do this. The bartender asked them if they wanted another. They say, you know what? I don't, I don't want another. Um, they recognize this isn't the path they want to go. They've, they've experienced something. They moved through it. They realize they have to do it differently next time. Now, the traditional recovery model would say, if that's an example of their recovery failing, that the recovery isn't strong enough, that they need to reset their clock, 
go back to zero, they're no longer sober. Hmm. But what, what's important is to say to this person, actually, if anything, that is an example of your recovery showing up for you. That if you were to look at the trajectory of your life, and you were to look at the frequency of use, you drank one time in a disordered way in 365 days, when before you couldn't go three hours. What a phenomenal thing you have done there. Mm -hmm. It's really important because what this person might think if convinced that that's an indication of failure is like, well, if this is a failure, fuck it. I'm going to drink the whole bottle. Mm. But if they're given permission to say what you're seeking is not complete and total abstinence of use, but complete and total abstinence of disordered use to where the goal isn't how do I be abstinent from this substance for the rest of my life, but rather how do I craft a life where use is less necessary? Mm-hmm. That's much more valuable. Then this person can come back to their group of peers who they're trying to get, uh, trying to go through recovery with and say, you know what? I have work to do. Mm-hmm. I'm 365 days in recovery. This doesn't change anything, but I just discovered there's an avenue of my life that's going to show up again. And I need a plan to, to deal with this in a much more healthier, much more aligned way than what I did. I acted on reflex, right? I wanted a numb pain that was overwhelming. I did that before for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So it just came back. How do, how do I do that better? Mm-hmm. That, that, I, that is such a much more uh, uh, careful mm-hmm. um, and sensitive and mm-hmm. human way of looking mm-hmm. at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's what needs to change in, in, in substance abuse recovery because if we look at recovery as just being away from your substance, that, that doesn't guarantee you anything. Mm-hmm. But if what we say is what we want to do for you is we want to help you reorganize your life. Mm-hmm. We want to reorganize your life in a way so that crafting a life that feels good to you, that allows you to feel like you have a sense of value that you can share, that has a sense of meaningful relationship with yourself and other people that you want to show up and be present for every single day. If that is really connected to you, if you really connect to those bonds and you want to be present for them, you're a lot less likely to use because use removes you from being present with them. Mm-hmm. And if you decide on a on a, a friend's birthday or wedding or some big celebration to have a sip of alcohol and toast with them and it's convivial and it's seldom and it's random, go for it. As long as the intention is celebration and not escape. I get a lot of people, uh, especially in the recovery world, who don't like what I have to say about this. But what I have to say is that 70% of people who check into treatment as it is today are back into treatment within one year. And that number is artificially lower because it doesn't account for the percentages of people who die within one year of leaving. And I've lost six friends uh, uh, within one year of recovery. Six friends within one year of recovery. And, and, and I'm not saying that they didn't want to be recovering. I'm not blaming the recovery system for it. What I'm blaming is their inability to say, we might not have it all figured out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it. No, that makes complete sense. And, you know, if for the substance abuse disorder, that makes, makes a lot of sense what you're describing. But if we go back and look at food, right? So first of all, food addiction is not a recognized diagnosis. It should be, right? right? But we, but the, the, the harder part is the environment and the requirements of eating yes. and the acceptance of the fast food joints and everything. So what 100%. I try to, what I found to be successful with patients is exactly what you're saying. You're changing the narrative to themselves and to the people around them and giving them permission to understand your journey's going to go like this and it's okay. It should be. You it ha- should. It's normal. It's the way it's yeah. going to be, right? And prepare for those things in advance to know that things are going to happen and you still might screw up. It's no big deal. These are learning opportunities. These are not exactly are opportunities for you to become wiser. And I said it happens because. You're going to be there someone in your future is going to, you know, I look at them and tell them like, when in your future, your experience in your journey, your, your book that you're writing right now is going to help someone else. Like you're, when you yeah. share your, just like you, your story, your experience where you kept asking yourself, why aren't these studies? I'm like, yeah. well, it's the universe saying we've opened these doors for you, Adam. It's your time to do this study, right? You were given that question. So I, I and that really helps the patients understand that they didn't fail again. It's just that, right. you know, these are learning. So just ask the opportunity, like, what am I, what are you here to teach me? Really? This is. Yeah. You're not failing. You're figuring it out. Exactly. That's what's you're... happening. Uh, yeah. There's a, there's an analogy for this. It's really uh, helpful for people. 
And that's the story of the Apollo, uh, Apollo 11 mission to the moon. Okay. Mm. So this is by all accounts, one of the greatest feats in human history. And I mean that because what we did was we decided to take humans from earth, rocket them through space, and then lay safely land them on the moon so that they could walk out onto the moon. Okay. That is an extraordinary effort. That is unbelievably uh, a big deal to do and probably one of the greatest feats in human history. So if we're going to do something that, that, that's that big and that dangerous and that unexplored, we must have had it figured out, right? How could we, how could we let people leave if, they, if, if we didn't have it all figured out? How could we do such a big thing if we didn't have it all figured out? Do you know what percentage of the flight time from the Earth to the moon they were actually on course? 2%. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's 2%. They spent 98% of the time course correcting. Right? Exactly. 98% of the time. Mm. And the reason why I like this is you don't know how to get there or you would have gotten there already. <laughs> exactly. Okay. You have to figure it out as you go. There's no other way to do it. Right. Right. Now you could say that they spent the majority of the time off course, or you could say that they spent every almost every minute of that flight figuring out how to safely get to where they wanted to go mm -hmm. and if they looked at it as failure they might have said we can't do this we're making too many mistakes we need to turn around mm -hmm. instead what they decided to do was say hey what we're going to do is we're going to keep going and finding out which ways are accurate and which ways aren't accurate and it's important to find them out both it's important to know which way to go and it's also important which way not to go so that in the future we don't repeat that decision as often. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for individuals who are saying like, you know, I just keep making mistakes, not making mistakes. You, you find yourselves in opportunities to figure it out and figure out how to do it differently next time. Mm -hmm. You're not a failure. If you knew how to do it, you would have done it already. Okay. Mm -hmm. So give yourself permission just to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I just tell them you're, you're the detective of your own life, right? Yeah, so you're, exactly. you're just following the clues and you're looking at the clues and going, what happened here? Why are you here? Yeah. What can we do to make sure you don't come back? Or if you do, what can we make it less impactful? So yeah, hundred percent, you're really changing everything there. So, well, I know, and I, I promise to keep yeah. you to your time. So um, really appreciate your time and sharing oh, your story pleasure. and everything. And any final words you'd like to share with the audience before we let you go? I would just say, you know, so there's a few things I like to share with people. Uh, number one, uh, if you know someone who's struggling, you don't need to have answers for them. In fact, most of the people who are struggling don't want you to figure their, their problems out for them. They want to be reminded that they have not been forgotten by those who matter to them. The number one thing you, you can do to remind them that they matter to you is to call them and tell them that you love them no matter what. Mm -hmm. You love them whether they're using or they're not. You love them whatever state they're in. And if they want help, you don't have the answers, but you would love to help them find it. Okay, that is phenomenal. It's a phenomenal thing to do. It gives them a sense that those people that matter most to them value their place among them. They value you as a part of their group. They love you. And what they want to do is they want to help you solve this problem and they don't want to solve it for you, mm -hmm. right? They want to take, they want to help you find someone who can solve this, this issue for you and that they love you whether, whether you do it or you don't. Um, the other thing is, a uh, very good friend of mine, David Clark, who passed away a couple of years ago, um, had a phenomenal saying. Uh, the, he, he reminded people that, you know, there's a quote that says, if you really want to enjoy your life, you should live as if it were the last day of your life. The problem with that, this is all David Clark saying this, the problem with that is if it were the last day of your life, you wouldn't do meaningful things to increase the future of your life. You wouldn't go to the gym. You wouldn't, you might not eat healthy. You might not do all the things that are important to creating a sustainable life. A much more valuable thing to do, instead of living your life as if it were the last day of your life, treat other people as if they were living the last day of theirs. Mm -hmm. That's a much more phenomenal way to increase the experience of joy in your life. Give people permission to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. If you knew someone was living the last day of their life, you would give them permission to not be perfect. Because what you'd want to do is allow them to enjoy the, the, the experience of being alive without having to feel like they have to have it all right before they have the permission to be around you, right? I, I just love that. I love that outlook. Yeah. And that was, that's a great one. And 
I interviewed David and it was a great interview too. So I encourage yeah. people to really, you know, look into his story and it was sad, um, but he had surgery and had an infection and, and passed yeah. and um, boulder. Um, but yeah, no, that was fabulous. You know, I, I love that you're saying show up for people, just tell them that they matter and that you see them and love them. That's what they want. That's people really don't want is, answers. They just want to know that there's a there. place for them amongst those who matter to them. Yeah. You know, that's what they want. Exactly. hundred percent. And I think a wonderful note to end this wonderful conversation. So thank, thank you, you, Adam. We really appreciate it. Thanks for watching. And I hope you enjoyed that video. Before you go though, please hit the subscribe and alert buttons so you don't miss out on any of the amazing content we're working so hard to provide you. We upload a new episode of Health and Mora with Dr. Lori Marbus every Friday. Now, if you'd rather listen to the podcast, you can find us on all the major platforms such as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and even Spotify. If you're looking for amazing resources to help you start and sustain a plant-based diet, exercise, recipes, or anything wellness, we got you covered there too. Because at Mora, we actually provide physician-led support groups to help people live happier, healthier lives free of metabolic disease. Don't forget to check out our website at mora.com. And thanks again for watching.